Christ started from where we start, subject to all the evil pressures which we inherit, and using the altogether unpromising and unsuitable material of our corrupt nature to work out a perfect, sinless obedience. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. So good to have you with us today. I'm Jake, and I am here with my illustrious co-host, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, thank you. So good to be with you. Merry Christmas, almost. Christmas season. It's a wonderful time of the year. I love it. Um, Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to our show. We really appreciate you. And uh, if you haven't already, we'd love for you just to take a moment Throw us a quick little review. Say something nice. Talk about how you know good-looking David is, and 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 how awesome he is. Um, and <laughs> and if you don't mind, drop us a five-star rating. We would love you for that. We got a great conversation in uh, up to bat for you today. I, my brain just went blank. In in my, I don't even know what I was trying to say just then. Being being a podcast host is hard. I know it doesn't sound like it's hard, but it is hard. This is one of the hardest things that I do. Do you find this challenging or is this just like playing in the kiddie pool for you? Well, I'm not the host. Yes, you are. We're co-hosts. You're well, you're the one that kind of initiates it and I just <laughs> respond. So it's easier for me. Yeah, but that means you have to use more of your brain cells because I just think of questions and, and you have all the answers. Well, I've had a few more years' experience developing my brain cells. That's Hopefully, true. they won't deteriorate too soon. <laughs> so there's this thing going around right now uh, where... Another uh, thing. Another thing. Yes. Um, that I wasn't even really aware of, but uh, Mike made me aware of it, where I guess there's some pastors and Christian leaders that are very displeased that uh, some churches are not having Christmas services on Christmas Day. Uh, now I'm a local church pastor. We're not having services on uh, Christmas Day. For us, it's kind of circumstantial because we pastor in a major city in Los Angeles that is extremely transient, and a lot of our people leave Los Angeles um, for the holidays. And people in LA in general do that to go back to where they're from to have Christmas with their families and and whoever else. But even if that wasn't the case. I think I still would have not had services on Christmas Day. And to be totally honest with you, maybe I didn't think deeply enough about it. But there are certainly some people who are up in arms uh, about this issue. And I'm just kind of curious to get your opinion on it, if if their vitriol is well-founded or not. I I tend to think that it's not. Um, So here's like a – here's a tweet. Isn't it tragically ironic that some churches will be closed next Sunday because Christmas falls on that day? In some places, the Magi might show up for worship and find the doors locked. In an ironic twist of the tale, they'd find that there is no room for them in the church. So this person well, is not happy. It exposes people's, for a start, it exposes people's historical ignorance because Christmas probably, in all probability, wasn't in December anyway. It was sometime later on in the winter. And this is, this is the problem of... Um, 
you know, building too much around something that isn't clear in the Bible as far as dates are concerned. Um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the king um, and the queen before him uh, have two birthdays. They have an actual birthday and an official birthday, which are two different things. Are we talking and, about British royalty right now? Well, it's the only royalty that counts. Well, you have to uh, clarify because I'm I'm not a subject of the the king or the queen like you are. So you know. I well, keep up with these are you an Australian oh, your, citizen? Your email's making noise. Can you mute your email? Oh, oh dear. Uh, how I, I was going to be hearing your email. Just close well, the application. Okay, just, just mention, uh, I'll, I'll. This is what it's like doing podcasts with, no, with, uh, I, I with David Campbell, everybody. I don't know how that ever happened. Uh, but somewhere in here is something called focus. Focus and, mode. And I've just fixed it. Look at anyway, you. You're, you're a tech savant now. Uh, well. Anyway, so back to the right. King of Queen's birthday. All right. You, you're uh, uh, born in Australia, correct? I, yes. I uh, guess I am the subject of the King of the Queen. But, I, but my passport's expired. That's irrelevant. I'm an American unless citizen. Unless you've renounced your citizenship. I haven't. Uh, and anyways, even if you're an American, everybody loves the monarchy. So I wouldn't uh, be so sure of this is postmodern culture. The, all Americans are just in rebellion against their lawful monarch. Well, you guys are just a bunch of colonizers. I've been for about okay. 200 years. What was that? I said, you guys are just a bunch of colonizers. Well, uh, I'm a Canadian, so I'm just fine. <laughs> so now you're uh, not a subject of the king and queen. I am a loyal subject of his majesty, the king. Hey. Now, uh, that having been settled, my point is that there are two birthdays that the monarch has. One is official and one is their actual birthday. And so it's a bit like that with Jesus that Christmas is kind of like an official ceremonial birthday, but it's not his actual birthday. Right. So I don't think we need to use a British phase, phrase, um, which is appropriate in the conversation at this point. Um, I don't think we need to get our knickers in a twist too much mm -hmm. over uh, celebrating Jesus' birthday on, on December the 25th. Uh, so that's actually a really good point. And as you were making the point, I was already kind of coming up with the counter argument to it. Um, but now that I think about it more deeply, it actually makes a whole heap of sense. I guess it would be one thing if if Christmas Day were the only time that a church was going to talk about uh, what Christmas means and, and what the incarnation is all about. But the reality is that most churches, you know, ours definitely – We've been talking about Christmas for the last three or four weeks. We've been preaching the Christmas message uh, for the last three or four weeks. We've been intentionally putting extra emphasis on reaching out to the lost people in our lives and inviting them to church so that they can hear the gospel for that time. So I guess it doesn't, it doesn't really have any uh, significance to, to have a, a service on the actual day of, of Christmas. No, and, and it's the same with Easter, that... You know, we sh we sh every Sunday should be Easter Sunday, and of course Easter Easter likewise is, you know, it's a movable. It's it's what in the Anglican Church calendar is called a movable feast. It moves around depending on, you know, um, the the 
position of the moon at whatever day of the month it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Easter is variable. You know, it can go mm-hmm. a few weeks in one direction or another. Exactly. So like, likewise, um, yeah, and and it, it's it's you know, I mean, it around the Jewish Passover, it's quite possible that once in a blue moon. Um, Easter actually does fall on the day Jesus was crucified, but we don't know the day he was crucified. We're not precisely sure of the year he was crucified. So again, it's like an official uh, observation of his death, mm-hmm. which is not the day of his actual death. Mm-hmm. So I think that we could look opportunistically at Christmas and Easter as church leaders and, and, uh, say, okay, is this a season where people are more open to attending a church service, for instance? Right. Uh, and uh, same as at Easter time. And I've noticed uh, in the UK in the last number of years that there's been a tremendous upsurge in carol services, uh, not necessarily on Christmas Day, but and not on Christmas Day, actually, but in the time leading up to that. And and large numbers of people. I mean, in Durham Cathedral, it's a, it's it's sold out for a student service. There are two thousand students attend every every Christmas their carol service, mm-hmm. and an evangelist comes in and makes a presentation of the gospel. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we were just at a service, a church we work with in rural Ontario. They've got churches in they've got sites in three small towns. Actually, one is a village and two are very small towns of just several thousand people. They had a thousand people across their three sites at their services, right. at their at their Christmas services. And But they did them the weekend before Christmas. They did them last Saturday and Sunday. So um, they were taking advantage of, of the season. So I think that I would say it's a great time to take advantage of the fact that people may be more open for whatever reason to attending a church service. And if you, if you blow that opportunity, mm-hmm. you might be missing God. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that every church, I'm just saying you might be missing God if you blow that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, to make a big d- deal about the coming to, you have to observe Jesus birthday on, you know, on the Magi wouldn't have turned up with well, the Magi, you know, it, it was a different time of year anyway. I mean, they would never have shown up on the 25th of December to anything. They were still, you know, back in Babylonia somewhere, you know, eating falafels and rice or whatever it was they were mm-hmm. eating and, and enjoying themselves, you know, and, and, and not on the road. So anyhow, I mean, that's, that's my perspective on it. I mean, I, I think on the other side is that uh, Christmas is a family day. And um, if it, and it's a time when a lot of people are on the road visiting their family. They have a precious few hours to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to take people, you know, those Which hours is very away. valuable. And it's not the same as, as being in church together, but it is something that is also smiled upon by God and spiritual in nature. Uh, sure it is. So, so it's, it's not like it's you know, we're not resisting something good in order to do something evil. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I don't understand the the reasoning of people that um, get all head up about it. I, I mean, surely to goodness, there's more things that you can be more concerned about than that. 
Mm-hmm. You well, know, let alone, taking pot shot, let alone taking pot shots at somebody else. I mean, do what as, you want. As, as, though, as though Christians already aren't portraying a very disunified image to the world around us. We just needed to find one more thing to, to argue well, about. I know. Anyway, I mean, we, we pre-recorded a service, and uh, you know, our our hope and prayer is that families will watch it on Christmas Day, and you know, there'll be a sense of unity in that we're all coming around the same message and 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 worshiping to the same songs. Um, but you know, I don't have any illusions about that either. I know that watching a, a service is not going to be people's number one priority on that day, and and I'm okay with that. You know, and this is coming from somebody who wholeheartedly believes that the church is not the church if it is not the gathered church. Like I believe in the church getting together, and I think the church is visible, and that that's not just a physical gathering. I think it's sacred. I think that the, it's 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 mystical in nature. The presence of the Lord is in our midst when we get together. Um, you know, it, upon reflection of 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 COVID, uh, I've even admitted to uh, friends of mine that. I think in that circumstance, I would be um, more likely the next time around to to push back into question, uh, especially now that we are in a place where we have actual permanent um, places before we had just rented venues and didn't really have an option in terms of whether we could gather or not. So I get the gathering, like I'm all for it. Um, and if anything, you know, maybe I might be more thoughtful next time in terms of should we gather, should we not? Um, but I think you make a very valid point in regards to the dates. Um, and I think there is something to be said about making the most of the season. Um, cause as you said, people well, those, those, those guys are just being Scrooges. Indeed. Get a life. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Let's move on. So, uh, before we jump into, uh, the main thrust of our conversation, we are going to continue with, um, the incarnation of God by John C. Clark looking at chapter four today, which is a really great chapter. Um, and also one that, um, I think p- people would maybe uh, kind of contest a little bit. I found one review on the Gospel Coalition that pushes back specifically on this chapter. Really curious to get your thoughts around that. But before we get there, uh, in my Bible reading uh, this morning, um, I was in Matthew 26, and I came across a verse that connects back to uh, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in regards to um, the most confusing chapter in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about eschatological things. And so there's a verse in Matthew 26, 64 that connects back to uh, Matthew 24, sorry, not Matthew 25, Matthew 24, uh, verses 30 and 31. And the verse in Matthew 26 and 64 is this, uh, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus says to the high priests and to everybody who has uh, brought him into um, the high priest's home. And they're making these accusations of him and uh, tell us if you're the Messiah, the son of God, Jesus says, you have said so. But I say to all of you from now on, you see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying this to a group of people in the first century. And he's saying to them, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven contrasted to Matthew 24, where Jesus says something similar, but I think means something different when talking about eschatological things. 
He says, then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So that's the same language of the son of man, the clouds of heaven. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. So the Matthew 24 one seems to me to be speaking of the return of Jesus, but the Matthew 26 one seems to be something different because Jesus is saying to these first century people, you're going to see this. Do I have that right? Can you shed some clarity and some light on that? Well, I, th I think um, Jesus is actually talking about his being seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm -hmm. and, in Matthew uh, 26? In Matthew 26, his, uh, uh, his resurrection and ascension and what, what theologically is called his session, which means his being seated mm. at the right hand of the Father. So from now on, it is, I mean, he's speaking uh, not from now on in the sense of in one minute from now, but mm -hmm. this is something that's imminent. It's going um, to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. It's on the verge of happening from now Referring on. Referring to his, his ascension. That's, what's, that's what, that's what the, the fact is. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, and I think that uh, you say, well, how could he say you will see that mm -hmm. when obviously none of us sees that in this earthly life? Um, but I think the answer to that is that as soon as Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, he began to rule and poured out his spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I think that he was prophesying, speaking prophetically to them, that you will see the results of the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of the Father, because at the, on the day of Pentecost, as a result of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Most High, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the city of Jerusalem, and everything is overturned, and it's the beginning of the end mm -hmm. for the uh, uh you know, for the people that killed Jesus, especially for the temple, um, you know, the Sadducees and the religious rulers mm -hmm. who uh, who disappeared within a generation, according to Jesus' prophecy, you know, about the temple being destroyed. They disappeared when the temple disappeared. Um, so that's my interpretation of that. So is the Matthew 26 the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Is that connected to Daniel seven where Daniel says in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So right. as far and as that, that is, that is, that's clearly fulfilled in John's vision in the fifth chapter of revelation, mm -hmm. where he sees Jesus being seated at the right hand, following his resurrection and I mean, it, it's just very clearly a fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven, the same terminology, exact same terminology is used. Um, and so uh, that's Jesus' ascension and, and being seated at the right hand of the Father mm -hmm. following his resurrection. Right. But it certainly does seem that in Matthew 24, the, the picture is something different. It's something even further in, down in, the line. In Matthew chapter 24, which I... I take a little issue with your describing its most confusing chapter in the Bible, um, <laughs> because I think actually once you explain it, it's fairly simple to understand. Uh, it's called it, marketing, David. It was a catchy title. Well, anyway, um, I'll, I'll pass over that. I just stick to the theology, not the marketing. Uh, but 
anyhow, um, I think that in that Matthew 24, Jesus is clearly with, talking about his return. With that being uh, said, though, I still I have had people tell me that they're still confused. <laughs> well, so then, we might need to do a part two. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, 24 seems to be speaking of his return. There's the angels gathering the elect. 26 seems to be clearly speaking of his ascension. All that to say, the moral of the story is you can't take the Son of Man and the clouds of heaven as always referring to the exact same event. It could be talking about two two different events. Correct. Okay. Very good. Okay. Um, Let's talk about this. This is a, a, a burning question that I've had on my mind for a long time. And it's, it's in regards to God and his judgment on a national level. When you read throughout the Old Testament, it certainly seems like God's judgment comes upon nations. Um, and that judgment is usually exercised through some kind of warfare, whether that be God's judgment upon uh, the peoples in, in the land of Canaan, that judgment came through Israel, or it's judgment upon Israel that came through Babylon or whoever else. Um, and then even God's judgment upon nations like Babylon or maybe Assyria is a better example who maybe overdid it in terms of, um, of, of their, their warfare upon Israel. And so they in turn get, get judged. Forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing any of this. I'm sure I probably am, but I think that's a fairly accurate picture. Um, my question is, in the New Covenant, does God's judgment, is it, does it still come upon nations? Um, I had asked you previously about, I think it's Matthew 25, where all, all the nations come before the Son of Man, and there's the separation um, of those who, from my understanding, who mistreated Christians or who uh, favorably treated Christians. Um, and so it seems like there's kind of a national thing happening there. Not to, not to say that I view it in exactly the same way in terms of God's treatment of nations in the old Testament. Um, I I don't actually don't think it's exactly the same, but I guess what gets me thinking about all of this is when I see our culture and, you know, I don't think America is special. I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't think America is the hope of the world by any means. Um, but I think when you look at a lot of cultures, for lots of different reasons in one direction or the other, we're erring a lot and have throughout history. Does God's judgment ever get exercised in a national way? I I think looking at it from a biblical perspective, um, which is always important because the Bible contains the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, God's covenant with Israel was a national covenant. Mm -hmm. It was a covenant with a nation. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, But what we know is that when that covenant was renewed um, uh, through Jesus Christ uh, and the provisions of the Old Testament, um, the whole sacrificial system, for instance, as well as all the thread of prophecy going right back to Genesis, everything, every bit of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he came. And uh, uh, 
the membership in it, it when that Old Testament covenant was both sort of renewed and fulfilled at the same time, um, the membership uh, was open to people of every nation instead of just Jews. So uh, and uh, so admission was not by birth. It was by profession of faith. And anyone could profess faith in in the work of Christ, the personal work of Christ. So uh, it, that switched a lot of things because whereas God had exercised judgment on national entities under the old covenant, he actually exercised judgment upon his own people from time to time. Mm-hmm. And he exercised judgment on other nations who opposed uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the church is not a national entity. It's composed of people of every nation. Mm-hmm. So the whole, there is no, we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So the whole idea of God being invested in one nation is, does not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, uh, there, uh, what has to be discarded as well is the, result or the corollary of that, which is the consequence of that, is that there were nations attacking a national entity when God had a national entity. But when God doesn't have a national entity, it's the church and anyone across the world that happens to be in opposition to God's purposes. So it's not as simple as it was in in the Old Testament days. Mm-hmm. Um, that having been said, uh, any uh, culture, any civilization, any entity of any sort um, ha- has within it uh, w- w- any entity of any sort which is not controlled by the Spirit of God and constituted according to God's word has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, and so uh, nations that, uh, nations where there is, there is a, you know, the rulership, for instance, of the nation, to take Russia as an example, or China, or Nazi Germany, or whatever, where, you know, there are things are being done that are let's, contrary. Let's bring it closer to home. So in America, we've just had the uh, Respect for Marriage Act pass, which um, basically uh in some way and i i need to study up on the law more but we're substantiating and celebrating the recognition of same sex union same sex marriage um our our views on things like abortion are far from what um christians should approve of right so we're talking about a society um uh that is sort of transcends national boundaries in a Mm -hmm. way because the same kind of trends are occurring across a number of Mm -hmm. western nations Mm -hmm. and i was just trying to use an example that's yeah rather than pointing to the other i want to look at ourselves right well i'm just i was just trying to set set up more extreme case Mm -hmm. but yes i mean where God's the the further a society or culture moves away from the Word of God, the more it has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you 
uh, devalue and dilute and do what you can to destroy God's plan for the family, the family unit, then you are creating a lack of stability in a society. And, you know, um, uh, you could even go back and say the complete liberalization of divorce was a contributor to that, mm-hmm. um, where people weren't um, encouraged to find a way to avoid divorce, right. but it was just open season. You could basically no do what you want, mm-hmm. which the Romans tried, you know, 2000 years ago, and it didn't go too well for them in the end. And so all these things, um, abortion, I mean, again, uh, infanticide, that goes back to Rome. I mean, none of these things are new in a way. Um, uh, and so it's the beginning of the decline of a culture and of a, of a society. Uh, and so uh, does it represent God's judgment? Well, you know, if if you go out and smoke three packs of cigarettes a day uh, and then you get lung cancer um, is that the judgment of God or is it the seed the seeds of the dis- of the destruction of your physical body were in your conduct you know because of what you did your habits and so on it's just that a principle of God is violated because if you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day you're not obviously honoring the temple of the Holy, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's going to be consequences. The same with taking drugs or a, a lot of sexual immorality. We've got a, an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases today in society. Well, surprise, you know, it's because we've moved away from biblical foundations. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I prefer to look at it that way, Jake, in, in the sense that a broad, cult, the decline of a broad, on a broad basis, the decline of a culture um, rather than of a particular national entity, because I think that a lot of these trends are, you know, across cultural. But going back to a, a, a specific case like Russia under Putin or, you know, Nazi Germany, for instance, uh, where you've got a regime, uh, whether it reflects the culture or not, is is debatable. It, it may to some extent, to some extent it doesn't. It's a dictatorial regime. Mm-hmm. That's just an extreme example of something that has the seeds of its own destruction in it. Communism had the seeds of its own destruction in it. It lasted for quite a long time, totalitarian communism in Russia for, you know, a hundred, not for a hundred years, but for almost 80 years. Uh, 80 years. Uh, and, and it looked like, you know, if you're, if you're old enough, I mean, back in the 19 even early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, it looked completely indestructible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, no one had any notion. Someone wrote a book on why the Soviet Union will destruct, self-destruct, and nobody believed whoever wrote it. I can't remember uh, who it was, but, you know, whoever it was was, you know, <laughs> understood a lot more about what was actually going on and so on than, than most of the rest of us did. But then when the collapse came, it came suddenly because it had the seeds of its own destruction in it. And uh, uh, so I think, you know, that's the way I look at it. Where God's laws are violated and people are treated really badly, then God gives people over. God gives governments and regimes over uh, to 
the consequences of their own actions. Mm-hmm. And, and in the handing them over, he hands them over to the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom of gar- darkness is always a kingdom of destruction. Satan's kingdom destroys. Satan cannot help but destroy even those who follow him. It's just in his nature. And so the more you have demonic activity, the more you and wherever you have violations of God's order, you have, you know, there's no vacuum. It's filled by the devil and his agents. And that is a kingdom of destruction. And so any society, any government, any regime that moves far, the further away they move from God's order, then the, the more infested they will be with the more invested they will be in the demonic realm they won't even realize they are but they are mm-hmm. and um and their destruction is just a matter of time so it it seems because obviously what you're talking about there is romans one the language of god handing over uh those of us who are i guess in a sense just co- we're committed to sinning we're, we're married to our sin and we don't want to give up our sin. So God hands us over to the consequences of that. And, and in that sense, our judgment is the organic outcome of our sin. But the Bible also speaks of uh, God's judgment being uh penalty as well. In other words, it's not just organic outcome. Um, God's, God's wrath is, is more than organic. And so I guess that's just kind of what I, I wrestle with. And I, if the, if the net of it is that it's, it's just that, you know, God allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. Um, that's an answer I'm perfectly willing to accept. It's, it's not that I believe me, I don't, I don't want there to be um, some kind of additional judgment. I just fear that there, uh, there might be, um, yeah, well, I think I think the attitude we have to take is uh, that from a biblical perspective, um, as we look at a given situation, a uh, culture within a, a nation, for instance, we we realize that it's a, it's only a matter of time before uh, all of that is going to bear a negative harvest. But um, because the, the national conversation, right, like using Israel as the example is that you know someone might say well god had an agreement with israel he had a covenant with israel and they broke the covenant and so god judged them and that judgment was you know it was more than organic it was penalty you know it wasn't necessarily the organic outcome for babylon to come and destroy jerusalem that was something right that- but the reason the you have to remember that the reason that israel was judged is because they had a very high degree of revelation of god Okay, so this is good. Uh, I want you to say more revelation. About Sorry? Yeah, it's, that's good. So, because it, So it's God's judgment of them was not necessarily just that they had an agreement. Because as far as I can tell, God's judgment throughout the scriptures isn't based upon whether or not God has a covenant with people. But the point you're making is that his judgment is based upon the degree of our revelation? Yes, which was expressed in the in the Mosaic covenant, which God didn't make with anyone else except for Israel. Israel had an extraordinarily high degree of personal contact mm-hmm. with God himself and understanding of God. But but then and why judge the Amorites? That's why God's judgment was all the more severe on them when they, they moved away from it. So when we're looking at our nation or, or our society, our culture, you know, it's why 
um, the New Testament says judgment begins with the house of God mm -hmm. because uh, God will, holds us to account. Those of us who know and understand, um, you know, those of us who know and understand the word of God, God will hold us to account. I remember having a, a discussion with my academic mentor, whose name might come up later in this, in this uh, podcast, Charles Cranfield. And uh, he was a little more tilted to the left in his politics. I tilted a bit to the right. And uh, I, I said to him, why was he so focused on freeing Nelson Mandela when Nelson Mandela you know, was in prison all those years in South Africa? And, and I, I said, well, what about the Russians? The communists. This I'm. This conversation is happening in the late 1970s, right, or the early 80s. What about them? And he looked at me. He said, "Well, David, um, the South African white apartheid government has been given a, a, a fairly pure form of the gospel, mm -hmm. uh, which they were in the Reformed churches, and they have." He said. The Russians don't understand the gospel, but the South Africans have been given the gospel and have been given it in a fairly pure form. And so therefore, uh, they come under a more severe judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think he would, I, you know, he, he shut me up. It wasn't the only time he shut me up. And I, I, I had to, you know, I walked away from that conversation agreeing with him. So I think judgment begins with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? The, the scripture continues. But we do have to remember that that God holds us to account rather than, you know, spending our time pontificating upon how bad the society around us is. You know, maybe the reason that the society around us is bad is because the church has not fulfilled its function of salt and light. And maybe God's judging us, too, you know, in a different way and calling us back up to what we should be. And I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't mean to be controversial, but you know, this whole Trump profits nonsense, it, it just garbage really. And all this stuff where this is not, this is a travesty of prophecy. This mm -hmm. is, these people don't understand anything about prophecy at all. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that were involved in that, they make, they make Jesus Christ and his church into a laughing stock. Mm -hmm and turn it into an instrument for political gain. And like I said a few few moments ago, I, I was then and still am on the right end of the spectrum as far as politics is concerned. But I think that's an absolute travesty. And, uh, and I, I feel that in the Church of Jesus Christ, there should be room for people of different political persuasions. There are many of my friends in England are on the left of the spectrum. And oh, I'm, I'm, I may think they're mistaken politically, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the church is not supposed to be a place where we trumpet political views and, and then pass it off as prophecy and, and predictions that never even came to pass anyway. Well, if they want to live back in old covenant days where God is judging nations, then maybe some of those people should receive the Old Testament penalty of their false prophecies, <laughs> you know, as being an option. Yeah. I'm not trying to be offensive no, to anyone on a political, you know, level here. Um, 
but I am concerned for a, what is a proper understanding. The, the role of prophecy in the New Covenant is not, capital N, capital O, capital T, not the same as it was in the Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. And it's because of this very reason that the Old Testament prophets represented and spoke to a nation, and they, they had the right to speak to other nations because that was the nature of God's covenant dealings. Now that is not the case. And New Testament prophecy is defined as comfort, edification, and encouragement, mm -hmm. and not people, you know, who have the temerity, who have the gall to set themselves up as judges over nations and say, this is going to happen to this country, and this is going to happen to another country. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say uh, that the seeds of Putin's personal regime are the seeds of his destruction. You don't even have to be a Christian to realize that, you know, it's not going to end well for somebody like that. Um, but I'm not standing up and saying, well, I'm God's prophet and saying that, you know, he, he's going to uh, fall from power within the next six months or something like that. You know, I'm just making an observation based mm -hmm. on biblical principle. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing. So I think um, anyway, I just shot my mouth off here and probably shouldn't have I did. No, I think what you're saying is great. I, there's, I need to kind of pick at your, your argument a little bit um, uh, about God's judgment based upon revelation. Um, because when I look at, you know, God's judgment of, of the nations that were enemies of Israel, um, certainly their revelation of God was incredibly low. Uh, and yet God's judgment of them seems quite severe. And then in a new covenant perspective, um, a, a Christian's revelation of, of God is quite high. And, you know, we, we still experience the, the judgment of God in, in various respects, you know, in terms of his discipline. Um, but the end of it is that our faith is um, what joins us to Christ and therefore enrolls us in the Lamb's Book of Life and we'll be saved. Uh, whereas somebody who is an unbeliever um, and rejects Christ as their Savior and Lord, their revelation of God is quite low, and yet their judgment seems quite severe. Well, not if they've heard the gospel. If you've had the gospel presented to you, you're accountable for what you've heard. Mm, I see. Um, uh, you know, but Paul makes it clear in, at the, in the first couple of chapters of Romans that everybody's accountable. Uh, and in the cha chapter three, the Jews are accountable, you know, um, not just the Gentiles, but even on the basis of creation, of the physical creation, it, there is a sufficient revelation of God for people, for God to hold people accountable. But if you look at the and study the history of the Jewish people under the old covenant, you know, when they fell, they fell big time. And, uh, you know, I I don't imagine that most of those other nations uh, suffered the kind of destruction that the Jewish people did on a number of different occasions. Uh, how do you take, uh, how do you take the Bible's language then about them being, uh, you know, wiped out completely? Um, I'm sorry. Well, when the Bible speaks of uh, those enemy nations of Israel, like the Amorites and the, Jebusites, and I'm sure I'm, you know, probably well, misnomering. Well, in, in the conquest of Canaan, mm -hmm. that was a specific uh, example. But I'm talking about over the broad sweep of history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the destruction of the Jewish people 
and nation in the time of Babylon or worse yet under the Romans was extreme. And uh, um, so uh, I don't know, because, you know, we we, I'm only in a sense, I'm somewhat speculating, but I would I, I do feel from the Bible that because they were so highly accountable, it seems that that's what the Old Testament prophets were saying is that, you know, as Jesus put it, to those to whom much is given, much is required, mm-hmm. that that a lot was given and they deliberately flouted the revelation, the personal revelation and knowledge of God that they had. I mean, look at in the days of Moses. Um, I mean, talk about church discipline, Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how would you like to have some recalcitrant member of your conversation be swallowed up in an earthquake? Might happen in California, but, uh, you know. Uh, you, you, you go but down. We, oh, we won't oh, call it the judgment of God. <laughs> you know, well, fortunately, God doesn't, uh, you know, there's a different set of principles in effect today in some ways. But, um, you know, that was that was pe- people who had come face to face with the presence of almighty God and stuck their tongue out at him didn't last long, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think it's just in the mercy, um, you know, but you mean, Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh mm-hmm. that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, what does that mean? You know, I mean, I, I have it, an idea. What. Yeah. I, I think it means that Paul views the church as a nation unto itself, uh, as you know, the city of God to use Augustinian language. And that when the person is removed from the church, he is in a sense being handed over into Satan's domain, which is the domain of the world which is not to say that God is not still sovereign over the world. God is, I think the book of revelation makes that clear, but that God has given license to Satan to exercise his ruin uh, in that sphere. Um, And so that person being excommunicated in first Corinthians five, I think is suffering the destruction of their flesh. As you said, Satan knows only how to destroy uh, and the seed of their sin will sprout into destruction as they are handed over to living that way. Um, but the salvation of their spirit, hopefully I think is, uh, connected to them repentance. Uh, and as being welcomed back into the church. I mean, we had a, a very sad situation and this is going back many, many years. Um, and I said to a man, I said, if you don't come under God's, uh, law, then God will hand you over to civil law. And within a matter of, I don't know, days or weeks, he was in jail. Wow. Uh, and there was no nothing to predict that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, but in that, I think God was, God was sort of saying, look, here's a preview of what's going to happen to you unless you get your life right. So, I mean, God is merciful and... Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want anyone to be lost. But I think that if in the, I mean, the judgments of Revelation, like the judgments of Egypt, are sent to kind of wake people up. They're wake up call. They're even if they're calamities, they're all that if they're all that people will listen to. Then, in the mercy of God, He allows that to happen, so that people's attention could be arrested and turned to to Himself, and. Uh, and so that's why I'm still hoping 
out of this whole pandemic shakeup is what I said before it started, at least January 2020 was really before it started. Uh, but when news was coming out and I and, and I said, this is a class, this is going to be a classic case of one of the plagues of revelation. God is going to use it to to um, challenge and shake up a culture that has uh, become rooted in, in the idolatry, the worship of material things, technology, medicine, so on. And God is going to shake up a, a complacent church. So I think that's still unfolding. Actually, uh, I, I it is still unfolding, and both in the church and in the world. Hmm. So, anyway, it sounds like we're we're most comfortable to say that uh, although God has judged on a national level in and throughout history, uh, it is most accurate to say that God's judgment falls more finely upon individuals than it does upon nations. However, if a regime or an entity is organized around a uh, principle or philosophy that is raised against the knowledge of God, let's say, then uh, his judgment might fall upon the entirety of that entity or that regime uh, as a whole. But that we would stop short of saying that God's judgment might come upon an entire nation. Um, because and, and in an the entire church. nation is made up of lots of different kinds of people, Christians included. Right. And in the church, we need to uh, be very careful not to assume uh, an Old Testament prophetic status. Um, so, And to realize that the mm -hmm. prophetic voice in the New Testament including in the book of Revelation, is directed to the church. Revelation is written to the church, not to the world. Blessed is the one who reads and keeps, you know, or hears and keeps the words of this prophecy. It's directed to the church. So God is speaking prophetically to his church, and we should be extremely, extremely cautious of people who claim to be prophets to the nations and this kind of thing. I don't see it. I can't see it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing uh, examples of it which have been accurate or edifying. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I mean, when, when I really. And, uh, and when you, you raised Matthew 25, the, you know, when, when the nations of the world are gathered for judgment. Let me, let me read it really quick. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. And he will sit on his glorious throne. So we have in view here the return of Christ. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep on his right, goats on his left, and so on and so forth. And then, he, and then God addresses individuals following that. And so then the idea of a nation, all the nations, it's a, it's a figure of speech where the the whole stands for the sum of the parts mm -hmm. so the nations are the peoples of the world mm -hmm. and the peoples of the world then as the as jesus teaching continues are construed of as individuals um in in the end um i mean margaret thatcher famously said there's no such thing as a society there's just individuals um uh, I mean, anyway, you could take issue with that, but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, God does not deal with a collective entity of a quote unquote nation in judgment. He deals as Jesus story makes very, very clear. Mm-hmm. You know, he addresses individuals who are, who are classified as either sheep or goats. Mm-hmm. So they, that's a figure of speech where the nation stands for those who compose the nations, all the peoples of the world. The judgment is universal. That's the point. Everyone yes. will be called to judgment. And I think we should all be grateful for that because none of us wants to be judged on the basis of a group that we happen to belong Good to. heavens, no. No. Yes. I, no. And that's right. where collectivism turns into an absolute hellhole of a scenario. Um, and, and justice is no is is not justice actually justice is not really done um cool yeah i i think i mean honestly that's i've thought this over a lot in my head um and and where we are landing is is where i net out um but i want to be i don't want to be ever just kind of like gloss over things because it makes me feel better just to arrive at a conclusion that um uh, is less terrifying, I guess. But in saying that, it is still kind of terrifying to know that in our within our choices um, are the seeds of our own destruction. And it seems to me right now that um, you know we're making some some choices that are uh, going to destroy us. In the same way that you know, I, I guess it could, it could be said. Um, if slavery was not eradicated, that would have been the destruction of our nation. Something as evil as that would would carry the seeds of our own destruction and the destruction of any people who practice such horrendous things. Um, I mean, if you the principle has to play out equally across all kinds of behaviors and all kinds of uh, decisions and choices. And so, I guess it just is a matter of time. Is <laughs> history moves slower than we than we like? Or than we expect, I suppose, where we, we can participate in all kinds of terrible behavior for long periods of time and um, things pull apart quite slowly, would you say? Yeah, but I, and I think, as in the collapse of the USSR, that things accumulate behind the scenes and then they burst all of a sudden. Um, and, and, and people say, well, where did that come from? Uh, but it was accumulating, you know, like the pressure behind a dam when there's a crack in the dam, it accumulates and accumulates and this, the dam becomes more and more stressed, but there's no indication of it. And then all of a sudden it reaches the tipping point. Is God's judgment more, it's more than just something organic? Do I have that right? Is it also penal? Well, it's, yes. I mean, God's judgment it, I, I wouldn't use the word organic anyway. I mean, I would just say that um, there are results and consequences for sin and disobedience. Uh, so your actions have a consequence. Mm-hmm. And if you violate God's laws, your actions will have a consequence. That consequence is pictured in the Bible as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, not in the sense that God is a nasty, vengeful God, because mm-hmm. God sent his own son to rescue us from that. And in spite of that, we willfully chose to go our own way. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of debates on what hell might be like. 
Um, but one viable option, because fire is a, is a symbolic in the in the New Testament of the judgment of God. Uh, the lake of fire is a place of separation. It's defined as a place outside, you know, the presence of God in Revelation 22. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it is as the medieval, you know, artists depicted it, a place of terrible tor- fiery torments or whatever, or whether the language is symbolic of the, the judgment of God being you are away from the presence of God. Um, in which case, and I think it was C.S. Lewis that pictured um, hell this way, that it's people simply carrying on in the way they've lived in this life and it getting more and more meaningless, more and more without God. Mm -hmm. And it's what they've chosen. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a shadow of a life. I think I think that that is a slightly sanitized or a, a very sanitized view uh, on that, and I don't know how literally C.S. Lewis wanted to be taken on that. I, I do think hell is is something quite worse than carrying on with our lives as though God were a non-existent entity. Yeah, I mean we can't we can't, uh, but the, to be away from the Jesus' own God, language itself seems to be more severe. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm just saying that uh, that the 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 idea of fire, for instance, the Book of Revelation is symbolic of judgment, goes back to the Old Testament. So it's pictorial language, mm-hmm. which we don't. So it just so so also is the description of the New Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that there are literal streets of gold, obviously, right. mm-hmm. um, and so. The lake of fire idea doesn't mean it's literally a lake of fire. Uh, we just don't know. I mean, no. it, you don't want to be there, whatever it is. You don't but, want to be there, which is to say, even though it's not a literal lake of fire, it's certainly not it, the same it's, as, as it's life not as a happy, know it. It's not a happy place <laughs> to be. And, 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 and what it's certainly defined, uh, that, I mean, the, the, at the end of Revelation, the distinction is the presence of God, the absence of God. So because even in this world, if you're unsaved, there is still a presence of God in it's this world mm-hmm. that, you know, there is still his worldwide church. There is still the mercy of God in creation that gave you life and breath and so on. But you'll be detached from that mm-hmm. in in eternal punishment in, mm-hmm. in hell. Mm-hmm. And I do believe in in the whatever you conceive of hell as being or whatever it turns out to be. It is everlasting and conscious in nature. I agree. Uh, with you on that. I just I, I don't. I think people that believe in hell, it's just annihilationism, as as they call it, you know, that that hell doesn't really exist. I think they're they're trying to do God a favor by making him out to be not nasty or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're doing people a favor mm-hmm. because it's not true mm-hmm. that, well, that that that's not what the Bible says. Hell uh, is not the all. result of God's nastiness in the first place. Um, and I think we, when we when we feel like we need to make some kind of uh, defense of God, you know, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, by saying that annihilation is um, is what ultimately happens, I think we under we underplay the severity of sin um, and how evil sin is, uh, as though 
as though hell were a a more evil reality than the reality of sin itself. I think sin is uh, is incredibly evil, infinitely evil, all on its own, an, an eternal um, affliction against an eternal God, an eternal offense. And so I, you know, I, I the arguments that I'm reading certainly don't seem to point in favor of of annihilation, and, and they seem to be. I mean, even I'm finding out that John Stott famously. Um, yeah, I, a, I never figured for, that. I never figured that one out. Well, I read a statement on it, and it seemed to be grounded um, in in sentimentalism. You know, it, it's it's very hard emotionally to come to terms with the idea of something conscious and eternal um, yeah, punishment, but. But the, the arguments biblically, and I, I, you know, I don't know everything far, far, far from it, but they, they don't seem to be um, holding up to to scrutiny. Yeah, we can't we can't apply standards of human reason, uh, and, and, and you know, make stand, make human reason our ultimate. Uh, and I think that's a case where he was a man who was an extraordinary Bible teacher. I mean, I heard him. Uh, give an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, a number of different lectures. It was uh, it was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, nobody's perfect, and uh, um, you know, it's, including us, <laughs> including us. Um, so let's let's talk about. Thank you for engaging that in that discussion with me. It's, it's not an easy topic, and um, uh, I'm sure I'll still continue spending time thinking about it. Um, because God's judgment is just one of those things where you can't get away from it in the Bible. Uh, it's real. Um, and I think sometimes we like to downplay it because it's, it's the less nice stuff to talk about, uh, but it doesn't make it any less real um, and consequential in our lives. Let's talk about chapter four of the incarnation of God. Um, so maybe do our audience a favor and just would you sum up this chapter? What, what's the aim of the author? What are they trying to say? Well, I think is but the main point here. He's talking about what does it mean when it says Christ took uh, came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on our humanity. What does that mean? And uh, um, and you know he explores the sort of medieval Catholic response, which was, uh, you know, Mary. How do we how do we guarantee that Christ did not inherit the sin of Adam when he came into this world. Well, we'll take it, kick it back a step and say uh, Mary was immaculately conceived. She had a divine conception as well, which obviously the Bible doesn't talk, doesn't say uh, it didn't happen, but they invented that uh, so that Mary herself, the line of Adam's sin was somehow broken because she wasn't conceived and didn't, wasn't, didn't have the seed of Adam and so on. And therefore, it guaranteed Christ's um, sinless humanity. That's the Roman Catholic view. That's that's a traditional Catholic view that's t- tied up with the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Whereas um, some Protestants, which was news to me, because I'm not a um, systematic theologian, I'm just a humble biblical scholar, but some Protestants uh, have come up with the idea that uh Jesus, you know, that that Jesus did not assume the sinful flesh, that somehow 
that line of transmission was cut off through the virgin birth and Jesus was really and truly human, um, but uh, they seem to want to protect Jesus from, uh, you know, the idea that uh, he inherited Adam's sin. And I know that, you know, it's impossible for us to get our head around Jesus' humanity and how he could have, you know, those words in Hebrews, yet without sin. You know, he, he was like us in all respects, yet without sin. How the heck could that be? But the Bible just states it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't think we need to protect Jesus' humanity. Um and the authors here of the of the book in this chapter is suggesting that if Jesus didn't assume our humanity, he couldn't heal our humanity, mm-hmm. um, that Jesus had to come and bring about the victory of God in order to redeem human flesh, human nature, human beings, so that we would have, as we come to Christ, we begin to have the in life of the incarnate Christ manifest in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I I agree with what they're saying, that Jesus redeemed human, fallen human nature. It wasn't just that Jesus um, came into this world and got a pass on having to fight against all that he inherited from, all that was inherited from Adam's line, that Jesus if the incarnation is real and Jesus won the victory, then he had to face all those temptations and yet overcome them. And that just seems to me to be obvious to me that his whole life was a manifestation of uh, victory over sin. And that's what gives you and me hope that even though, you know, Jesus' victory comes in two stages, one of which was in his earthly life and death and resurrection, the other of which um, comes in his return. And uh, Jesus himself, of course, personally received complete victory, walked in victory, he was received at the right hand of the Father and so on. But the effect of the coming of his kingdom is in two stages because we come to him and for the first time, because of of the life that Christ lived, empowered by the Holy Spirit, those of us who have trusted in Christ um, by the power of the same Spirit that live within Jesus are able to fight back against the power of sin. Now, we don't overcome sin in the way that Jesus did because we uh, are fallen human uh, creatures who don't respond in the perfect way that Jesus responded. Um, Nevertheless, for the first time, there is the ability within us by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the life that Jesus lived in this earth. For that life, basically, if you can if you can think of it as the life that Jesus lived while he walked this earth has been transferred to us. That's what Paul says. He made him sin who knew, knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What, what do you mean, Paul, by that? What he means is that something of the righteousness of Jesus Christ while he walked in this earth could be, was given, transferred over to us 
When Jesus, in spite of the perfect life he lived, took the punishment on our behalf, he became sin, not in the sense that he sinned, but he, he carried the punishment of our sin uh, on the cross. That, that, and so as a result of that, um, the actual life that Jesus lived is now shared with us. We share in his incarnate life. We don't share with it perfectly. We will share it perfectly when we're united with him in the new Jerusalem mm -hmm. um, or when we die and enter into paradise. Um, perhaps it's but, more accurate to say we do share in it perfectly, but it hasn't yet manifested itself. We share in it yeah. in a real but incomplete sense. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. And that's the Christian life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, my my old academic supervisor gets quoted a number of times in this chapter um, in his magnificent commentary on Romans, which is, I think, the finest commentary since Calvin. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and because, uh, you know, my supervisor had Charles Cranfield, he had the idea that you didn't have to quote a 50,000 other scholars to make your point like the rabbis did. He said, you, you really need to go back and read Calvin and read Augustine and read Chrysostom and some of the church fathers. And, and then you just need to take it before God and think quite a lot about what the text actually means. And Here's my theological advice to you. Read John Calvin and have a good think about it. <laughs> Calvin, well, not just Calvin, but Calvin and Augustine. I'm being, I'm and uh, some of these uh, guys, whereas, you know, a lot of the commentaries today, if you read them, they're, uh, well, I, you know, I take this position and then there's all this series, there's a series of footnotes with all the people that agree with your position, mm -hmm. but you maybe not, haven't really explained your position all that well. Mm -hmm. You just think that because 50 out of 65 or something, mm -hmm. Scholars have taken that position before, but when I, and I did this, when I wrote my thesis, I mean, you go back and look at the quotations and you say, okay, well, I'm taking this position because, you know, Professor so-and-so took this position and therefore it must be correct. Right. And then you go back and read Professor so-and-so and he took the position because Professor something else <laughs> took that, you know, a few years earlier. And it all goes back to an infinite regress, not quite infinite regress, but a regress where you know, somebody just had an opinion. Yeah, and I take this position all... because God takes this position, well, and that, He's that, the uncaused that... cause. <laughs> well, not quite, but somebody, you know, said, "Well, I think this is the the meaning of this particular passage," and his argument may not have been that impressive, but other people said, "Oh well, because he said it, it must be true," and then all of a sudden, you get all these people, and it kind of ties into what Chris was talking about last week in regards to the AI thing. And that D.A. Carson story, like, we don't need another commentary on John. We need another theologian who's written a commentary on John, someone who's yeah. thought about it. And who's thought about it. And he used to go out for long, long. He would walk miles thinking about a verse in Romans mm -hmm. and communing, really, with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And if you read his commentary, there's a lot less uh, padding of quotes of all these people there's some obviously but he lays out all the different possibilities and he explains why he thinks this is what paul you know actually said 
and it's very, very well thought out. And, and it should be said ba- based upon, uh, I'm guessing, like a historical grammatical reading of the text. He, he's not asking the question, what does this mean to me? He's, right. he's studied it. He knows the background, the context, all of that. And he's he, using that. To he knew the background. He, he understood the language very, very well, more than most New Testament scholars do today. And uh, uh, I'm just trying to find. Uh, um, While you're doing that, let me just see if I can kind of summarize um, the uh, the initial problem that uh, the author of this book is pointing out. So on the Roman Catholic and the Protestant evangelical side, you have a separation of Christ from man in the sense that they make some kind of attempt to uh, establish the humanity of Christ as uh, almost like a, I guess, pre-fall Adam humanity. So he's fully human, but human, but humanity that hadn't yet been um, touched by sin. Um, and so the Roman Catholics, they start with Mary and her immaculate conception. The Protestant evangelicals um, just say somehow in the conception of Christ, um, there was a, a break there in the natural flow of things and and that's how that worked. On the Protestant liberal side of things, you have a different issue. It's not the separation of Christ from man. It's the separation of Christ from God. So that Christ is, in a sense, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's different to us, not in his essence, but just in his degree. Um, he, he's just very godly, and his God consciousness is extraordinarily high. And, and something to be aspired towards. And so it's, it's much less supernatural. Um, and what, then what they're proposing, I think, is uh, that Christ assumed our humanity totally and completely. He's still without sin. And their explanation of it, and hopefully I'm not oversimplifying it, their explanation of it is that at the moment of his conception, Christ was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And throughout the entire duration of his life, he was always being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But his flesh was flesh. He was he was as man as man can get. And let me let me read a couple of quotations here. The first is from Calvin. And Calvin says, How has Christ abolished sin? How has he banished the separation between us and God? How has he acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this we can in general reply that he's achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. In short, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. It wasn't just at the cross. The cross was the culmination Mm -hmm. of the price that Christ had been paying Mm -hmm. uh, throughout his life of obedience. And so Cranfield says, he says, Christ's obedience was not just a standing where unfallen Adam had stood. And what what he's saying here is that uh, you can't just say that Christ started with an advantage, that he didn't inherit the sinful nature. He he was starting from where Adam was in the garden, because that's what some Protestant theologians actually are implying. And 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 Cranfield is saying, no, you can't say that. Um, that that Christ sort of succeeded where Adam failed, in the sense that Adam you know, was not infected by sin. He made a choice. He made a wrong choice. No, it's, he says, 
Christ started from where we start. I find this very encouraging. Mm -hmm. and you should too. Christ started from where we start, subject to all the evil pressures which we inherit, and using the altogether unpromising and unsuitable material of our corrupt nature to work out a perfect, sinless obedience. So Cranfield probably went for a long walk before he wrote that and thought about it and revised it a number of different times, but it's absolutely powerful because my encouragement is that uh, there is a man who lived starting from where I start, subject to all the evil pressures that I've inherited, but he used the altogether unpromising material of our corrupt nature, but he did it to work out a perfect, sinless obedience. That's absolutely incredible. That's the revolutionary truth of the incarnation. And to me, that's, that's self-evident. And from my you know, uh, doctoral studies in Romans and so on. I think that he's absolutely right that he, he, Cranfield comments on, you know, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Mm -hmm. And this is what he means by it. Um, it, it, it wasn't just a, you know, that, that Christ was protected. He didn't really assume sinful flesh. That's like almost going back to those early church heresies where they were trying to protect the divinity of Christ uh and the sinlessness of christ by suggesting that well maybe he didn't quite take on human nature he was just god you know enveloped in something that looked human but wasn't you know mm -hmm. you can't insulate mm -hmm. jesus from the sinful humanity he he took it upon it in order to destroy it and that's the hope that we have that he walked that we are saved not just by Jesus' death, but by his life. And that's why his life can be released in us. And it's why there's hope for us. We look at our own lives. They're not perfect the way that Jesus was. But the, the life that Jesus lived is given to me. Um, I have a share. It overflows from him into this sort of murky mist of my own compromised fallen human nature and brings redemption in a way that people looking at me can see the image of Jesus Christ. They can look at me and see something of Jesus in me. And, and if we were like that in the church, and if Christians were like that, then I, I think we would have massive, powerful impact in the world in which we live. And maybe that's part of what God's trying to do in shaking his church. I, I think, I mean, I think that in, in third world countries and nations, and you hear many reports in the mission field where Christians are suffering, but have maintained an uncompromised faith, that that's why multitudes are coming to Christ because they see the example, they see the light of Christ and the life of Christ within them. I think in our compromised Western culture where you know, people argue over oh, having church at Christmas or this type of thing. You know, really, um, where are the disciples in our culture? It's far too easy to be a Christian in our culture. And there are far too many people who are sitting in churches that don't understand hardly anything about discipleship. And I wonder how many of them are really saved. Dang. <laughs> yes. Totally. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it kind of reminds me of, I think it was chapter one where they introduced the idea, which I thought was brilliantly said in terms of essentially 
heresy is born out of a need to solve the mysteries of God. And so, you know, when you're trying to protect the divinity of Christ and say so you need to come to, you know, the defense of his divinity by somehow downplaying his humanity, you wind up in, in a heresy. Orthodoxy is embracing mystery and, and taking, uh, taking on its face what biblical truths, you know, clearly states. Um, and so I think it, that's where you have to start. I do like their explanation, that high, the idea of Christ's humanity. Here's a direct quote. Uh, Christ's humanity was immediately sanctified to God at the moment of conception. At the moment it was united with God the Son by the power of the life-giving communion-creating spirit of holiness in the womb of Mary. In other words, we confess that God the Son sinlessly assumed our sinful flesh such that Christ never sinned in thought, word, or deed. So they, they maintain what a... A, a normal Protestant evangelical maintains, which is that Christ was uh, sinless, but they're not trying to do away with the fact that he was fully human. Um, and I think their explanation of the sanctifying power of the spirit is, is quite satisfactory. Yeah. You know, we have this misconception. I remember my grade 10 Latin teacher, she drew a chart in the wall and, uh, you know, where, where do you think the progress of civilization is? And, uh, and she said, most people think, well, back then it was at a very low point and now we're way up at the top. Mm -hmm. And she said, but maybe that's not the case. Are we really? Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't think if she's, if she saw the Roman empire as being the top, which I don't think quite was what she was saying. I think she was just saying, look, we're a bit arrogant in our mm -hmm. modern world. We've mm -hmm. got a surfeit, a surplus of knowledge, but maybe not a lot of wisdom. And that sure plays out in the church because the more you look back at what the early church fathers had to say mm -hmm. and the great church councils at Nicaea and, Cal and Chalcedon mm -hmm. and the, the statements that they produced, nobody's ever improved on those and um when you look at some of these statements that's and some of those early church fathers made about various topics they were beyond profound you know and we 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 have to have this arrogance shaken out of us i think i mean yes it's true that in the realm of technology we have moved far ahead of where the technology of 2000 years ago, but is it true in the realm of wisdom that we have really moved any further ahead? I actually think it's a regression. When you look at our culture today, it, it isn't much to write home about in terms of how to live life and what real wisdom is. Well, I think it's that has something pathetic. to do with the, the minimizing of, of Christianity's impact upon the culture. And I know somehow we always end up finding our way back here, but I think the the further uh, the further Christians stick their head in the sand in terms of um, what impact we are called to have, or the, the way you said it, you know, to be salt and light. Um, I think the the more culture will regress into. And I I read a statement today from somebody saying that um, we need witnesses from outside our culture. Uh, even our Christian, our church culture, let's say, um, we need Christian witnesses from outside of it to be with us, to give us perspective and to save us. And I think in these days, we desperately need brothers and sisters from 
Africa, Asia, uh, the Islamic world, uh, very poor countries, uneducated people, perhaps. But we really need the witness of many of those people um, who are walking in a depth of relationship with God that we don't even understand. We need those people. We need exposure to those people. It's not so much mission trips as go to, you know, uh, some of these many places around the world and just sit there and and learn and sit at the feet and watch the example of Christians that are really walking it out and carrying the cross in 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 very very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's just a little thing Ta- I'm power of in, uncompromised don't life. Much to do with any, but it's the incarnate life is being lived out there. Maybe in a way that because of the comfort level of our culture, it's just superficial here. So much. Christianity is mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some um, just as we come to a close, a couple of quotes I thought were really profound. Perhaps an incarnate savior with his humanity insulated and isolated from our own could exert an external influence upon us to free us from the penalty of our sin, but the power of sin rooted in the depths of our fallen and corrupt human nature would necessarily remain untouched. So that same idea of whatever Christ does not assume, he does not heal. But in the assumption fully of our humanity is the healing fully of our humanity. So if he, if he merely came as a, a surrogate or uh, if he came in, in the likeness of, of pre-fall flesh, then, then maybe still he would be able to free us from the penalty of sin. But which is, a, which, which, yeah, which is saying Christianity is fire insurance. There right. is no change in our life here, right. but we'll be saved there. Great. And I, I don't think that's New Testament yep. Christianity at all. He frees us from the power of it. Not to say that we don't still have a Romans chapter 7 complex relationship with sin, but that our relationship with sin has fundamentally changed. There is uh, a power that we now have over it that we did not have before. Um, and that only happens because Christ has assumed our, our humanity. So I thought that was uh, just a really great way to to put it. Um, and then I guess just kind of like on the other end of the spectrum, if we want to close with this, uh, because there's equal danger in separating Christ from his divinity as there is in separating him from his humanity. And that's what they talk about on the, um, the Protestant liberal end of things. I'm going to read uh, kind of a lengthy um, segment here, because I think this will kind of help us, just dive into this end of the conversation and we can, we can wrap it up with this. Um, okay. So speaking of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who is the, uh, I get, they call him the, um, uh, the father of modern day theology. I've heard him called the father of, of liberal theology. Um, yes, that'd be more accurate. Well, one of the fathers anyway. Yeah. So Schleiermacher's Christ signals the prospect of human ascent without the paradox of divine descent. In other words, man's, I love this. This is so, so quippy man's coming of age without God's coming in flesh. Protestant liberalism shaped by the likes of the bunch of names they list here, greatly influenced academic theology in Europe and North America throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. Yet none delineated and popularized this movement with the proficiency of Adolf von Harnack. He insisted that the gospel as Jesus proclaimed it has to do with the father only and not with the son. 
Jesus draws our attention to the great questions of life regarding the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of mankind, not to himself and certainly not to Christology. And because the whole of the gospel concerns God and the soul, the soul and its God, then the gospel must be kept free from the intrusion of any alien element. Tragically, the alien element Harnack had in mind was the incarnation, the church's confession that Jesus Christ is God the Son in and as man. Harnack deemed the incarnation to be a distortion of the gospel introduced by the Apostle Paul and augmented by the Hellenization of the early post-apostolic church, a distortion assaulting not merely the simplicity but the very point and purpose of Jesus' own teaching, which summarily confronts every man with his God, says Harnack. Protestant liberalism desires to maximally adopt the cultural and intellectual movements of, of the modern milieu and maximally adapt the church's confession to the perceived preferences of modern men and women, speaking of enlightenment, rationalistic thinking. Thoughts? Yeah, they, they re took the events of the gospel out, took the supernatural out, and reduced Jesus to a moral teacher. That's basically... Yeah, what, he says, therefore, saying. Protestant liberals tend to reduce the Christ of Christianity, of Christian orthodoxy, to a master teacher, a sage spiritual guide, a great religious personality, or the prophet of socio-ethical ideals. If Christ was divine, it was merely in the sense that he was unusually godly, having lived in volitional and moral harmony with God. And, and there's an example of a movement where the seeds of its destruction eventually worked out, hmm. you know? Liberal theology. And those churches are dead as a dodo. And <laughs> And but they're they're, they're they're making their comeback with a vengeance in uh, in political parties. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because it's the same philosophy. It's the same. It's not Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know whatever you want to call it. It's, it, it's basically ad admittedly not Christianity to re to remove the divinity of Christ and to make him merely right. a extremely godly person sociological, political, sociological movement. Which is and, all you can really you, have when you don't have true religion, right? Because we right. are and religious you, beings by you, nature. And if you, if you can, you can accomplish the, your goals far more effectively by joining a political party than a, a liberal church. So the liberal church tries to remain relevant, but actually disappears. And, uh, it's pathetic. It's very, very sad, actually. I mean, because I was the product. I was raised in a liberal denomination, and when it wasn't nearly as as liberal as it is now. Um, it, but back a long time ago, in the nineteenth century and early twentieth century, it produced outstanding pastors, evangelists, missionaries around the world, and all the rest of it. And it's all gone. Mm -hmm. It's all been liberalism is a terrible parasitical you know, uh, sore on the body of Christ, which destroys everything it touches. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, it's really, really, really sad. Uh, it's all gone. Churches, buildings or condos or, you know, whatever they are, but they don't exist anymore. And now we just have to guard because the same spirit, it's a spirit behind that has entered in you know, it's always going to try to enter in where there's life and destroy it, which is, you know, the postmodern sort of woke theology, all that thing is just one more rehash. It's absolutely nothing new. It's one more rehash mm -hmm. of Schleiermacher, Harnack, and all those people that destroyed the church back then, and Satan hasn't given up. He'll try to destroy the church now. Mm -hmm.
I guess the main thrust of the argument being that uh, if you remove Christ's humanity, you wind up with the hopeless message of uh, nothing more than fire insurance, but no real change can take place in you now. If you remove Christ's divinity, you wind up with the hopeless message of a humanistic, overrealized eschatology where you're trying to usher in some perfect picture of what human existence can look like, but you're never going to reach it because you haven't dealt with sin. Only the divine God-man can accomplish that, and only he can give us actual hope. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and we will see you in the new year, actually, as we are off next week for Christmas. But we'll still still be going to church <laughs> somewhere. God bless everybody. Thank you, David.